So in bigger context, we're looking at his mission. This is his third mission. Um, he's revisiting a lot of the churches he already saw before, and he's encouraging them. He's teaching them. He's building them up. And he's, as he, well, he says himself that he was in Ephesus for three years. I counted three and a bit, but, or two and a bit, but, um, but we'll just give him the benefit of the doubt that he was there for three years, um, which is where he is right now, the, um, in, in the pink bit in Asia. There's Ephesus right there. Um, Kind of where the arrow comes, then shoots up. Uh, that's where he's at in Ephesus. Um, but first I want to look at Paul's intentions, what he wants to do after Ephesus. Even though we're going to be talking a lot about him in Ephesus and in his other journeys through uh, Macedonia and Achaia, uh, basically Greece, I want to look at his intentions, you know, and also look at, you know, his, his ministry and his heart um, in Ephesus, which is actually kind of cool. But, but, but just to recap in Acts 19, verse 21, um, after all this has happened, this is, um, uh, I believe, the riots, one of the many riots uh, that Paul had to deal with in his missions. Uh, but this is the one in Ephesus. Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, um, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. Now, if you look at the map, it, you would think that language that he's like, oh, let's just go to, it's like almost like, if you lived in Glasgow and you want to go to Edinburgh, but I'll pass through shots and say hi. Yeah. Well, that's not exactly what his intentions are <laughs> because he's going the wrong direction if that was the case. He, he, what he wants to do is he wants to continue his, his mission, which is encouraging building up the churches that he's already helped establish. So he wants to complete his mission. So to complete his mission, he wants to end basically in Corinth and then return back to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is usually where he finishes his mission, um, usually maybe to make, um, maybe go to the temple, uh, what not. Um, and after that, he would return to his sinning church in, um, in Syria, um, Damascus in Syria, Lord. And then, um, uh, no, it's Antioch. I'm sorry. Antioch. I'm sorry. I'm thinking Damascus. That's where he was saying Antioch. Yes. In Syria. So, but, but, but then after that, he wants to go to Rome and that's what we learned already. So after passing through Macedonia and Achaia on his way to Jerusalem, he, uh, he says, after I have been there, I, I want to visit Rome. I want to go to Rome. So, you know, he's, he's already made a big impact in what's called the backbone of the Roman Empire, which is through Turkey, all the way to Syria. But he wants to go, you know, so center to, to, to east. But he wants to go all the way west. He wants to go to Rome. You know, he wants to complete that circuit, if you will. Which is good. So, but that's his vision. That's his intention. I want, I, want, I want to fry some big fish. I want to go to Rome. You know, that, that's it. If I, can, if I can conquer Rome, I've conquered the world for Christ. That's, I think, kind of what he's, his intentions are, what he's seeing here. So he sent two helpers. So, okay, so that's his intention, to go to Rome. But he needs to finish his mission here and return to Jerusalem. So he sent the two helpers, Timothy and Eratus, to Macedonia. And then while he stayed in the, the province of Asia for a little longer. And then... Next slide, and that brings us to chapter 20. And then, of course, we talked about that, that riot um, 
you know, where it was calmed with a little bit of, of reason. Um, but Paul definitely sees this, this is his time, you know, because of the uproar, because of the, the, the riot, this is probably a good time to maybe leave Ephesus and continue his journey into Macedonian Greece. So in verse 1, it says, When the uproar has ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. So he meets at the church in Ephesus one last time, encouraging them. Come on, guys. You know, be encouraged. You know, giving them the, the gospel, giving them the word of God, you know, building them up, um, leaving them not alone, not, not abandoned, but with, um, you know, a structure. And that structure is, you know, built by the power of the Holy Spirit, which we've seen manifested all through his, his, his time there in, in Acts 19. And then he's saying goodbye. He's going to Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement. Again, this kind of confirms what I said weeks and weeks ago about the first journey was about planting, is about the gospel, about evangelizing. But then the second journey, which is just as much a missions journey, it was less. I'm sure there was a fair share of evangelism, but it wasn't. That wasn't the primary. It wasn't the breaking the ground. Now he wants to encourage a church. He wants to build up a church. So he uses a lot of encouragement, a lot of building up the words and trying to encourage people um, to grow up, to function as a as a proper, you know, God ordained um, institution of a church. So he's encouraging the people. And then he finally arrived in Greece. Probably, well, the map's gone, sorry. Probably, you know, well, in Greece. Where he stayed for three months. So three months in Greece. Uh, but because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he, um, so, so, so going back home, basically, Syria, that's, that's where Antioch would be, his home church. So he, wanted, so he's, so he was finishing up his, his journey. He's done, three months. That's all he wanted, three months in Greece. And he wanted to go back and he wanted to, to sail. But, but because of this, these Jews wanting to plot against him, he decided instead to go back through Macedonia. So he was accompanied by um, Sopatar, son of Pyrrhus from Berea. It's cool. Again, this, and the reason why I like these names, these people, is even though I don't know a lot about them, in, in the Bible doesn't say you know, a huge amount of information about them. What I do like is to see the influence that Paul had in the effect that, he had, that God's had on people's lives as, as Paul was traveling and preaching the gospel and encouraging. There's these people who are, you know, stepping up. And here's this one fellow from Berea. And we know Berea. Remember, we talked about Berea. They were the church that were astute. You know, they, they were, you know, very highly plugged into the word of God. Um, Aristocris, we saw him a little bit last week. He was one of the guys who was nabbed in Ephesus. And... Uh, you know, here I put a little note that he was mentioned in the letter to the Roman Christians, uh, probably written around this time um, and possibly during the stay in Corinth. So, you know, probably either on his way to Greece or way back to Greece when, when Paul was in Corinth, which is um, actually in Greece, this is the, basically the end of his mission. Um, he likely wrote the book to, to um, the Romans. And, and so he was probably with this guy here. He's mentioned in the book of Romans. Um, Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius, we've already seen Gaius, he was another one of those guys who was nabbed in that uh, riot in, in Ephesus from Derby. Um, and again, Gaius um, was mentioned in, um, uh, in the book of Rome as well. Again, my, my speculation here is that he had Rome, you know, on his mind, he wanted to go to Rome. 
you know, and so he probably wrote his letter while he was thinking a lot about Rome on this trip. Timothy was there. We know Timothy. He's the, um, you know, Paul, you know, wrote letters to Timothy. We have in our Bible. He was a, a young minister, young pastor. Um, this other fellows, Tychius and Trophimus, um, they're from Asia. Again, Paul's ministry in Asia was pretty, you know, pretty significant. You know, he, he met a lot of people and changed a lot of people's lives being in, in, um, in the province of Asia, or we call Asia Minor, you know, modern-day Turkey. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. Okay, so on the way back, so Troas is coming back into, you know, modern-day Turkey, so going towards Asia. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of Eleven Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So, if you notice, he spent a couple of years at least in Ephesus. So his, 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 he had a real big heart for Ephesus. But he wanted to complete his journey. He wanted to say hi and encourage the people in other places. But his journey was quite quick because he was anxious to get back to home, to recover, to recoup, and to plan a new mission. But, you know, but the next time he wanted to go to Rome. And maybe he, his intention was to spend several years in Rome as well. So here in Troas, this is him returning. So he didn't want to spend too much time in Troas. He wanted to kind of keep going. It was like a, he was passing by, if you will. Uh, so, but he stayed there for seven days. So it wasn't a long journey. It wasn't a long trip. It was just seven days. Um, next slide. So, oh, I forgot about that slide there. There we go. So that's just a kind of a big picture of what we've seen. So he starts here in Ephesus, you know, travels up uh, and around Corinth down there. Coming back around, using Philippi for a little while, um, and then travel back to Troas. And then we're going to see from Troas, he's going to go down, um, sail through. And he's going to go down to, um, I can't see this is so blurred, but it's just below Ephesus. Miletus. Thank you, Miletus. Thank you. It's just below Ephesus, but he's going to meet the elders of the church of Ephesus there. And he's going to um, see his final farewells then. To, to the church in Ephesus, um, which is actually quite a touching story. We'll see that in a moment. And after that, you know, on its way back to Jerusalem. So next slide. But first, he does what a lot of preachers tend to do, and that's preaching way too long. I guess maybe his intention was, I got a lot of content. I know what it's like. I got so much ground to cover here, and I'm only going to be here for seven days because I don't want to be with you guys for too long. No offense. I want to get back to Jerusalem because I want to go to Rome because Rome's more important than Troas. Sorry, guys. So uh, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do an all-nighter. I'm going to do an all-nighter. I'm going to pack in two years' worth of material in one night. Is that cool? No, I don't think it's a great idea if that Paul did this, um, but he did it. And let's just see what happens. So um, verse seven, on the first day of the week, uh, we came together to break bread. Uh, Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, again, he wants to go, you know, go finish his mission to regather and rethink his, his trip to Rome. Um, he kept on talking until midnight there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Um, seated in a window was a young man named um, Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Now, this is why it's, it's a problem to, to rush your, your ministry. <laughs> it's because when people sleep, they don't hear. Okay, When people sleep, they don't think. When they sleep, they sleep. 
Okay, and so if you want to encourage and build people up, you want them to be awake, which is a part of the reason why I try to keep my messages on Sunday morning to 30 minutes and not an hour and a half, because already I can see at 30 minutes, if I'm not finishing, you're sleeping. So so you can guarantee I'm not going to have a ministry outreach event ever where I'm going to be preaching till or anyone will be preaching until midnight. Why? Because you should be in your bed at midnight. No offense. You, you know, you guys know me. Even at Hogmanay, I don't stay up till midnight. That's just pointless. Go to bed. There's no point in being awake. Your brain doesn't work after a certain point at night. You start acting silly. So, <laughs> Paul, he's preaching. He's preaching, he's preaching, and this guy is about ready to fall asleep. And what does Paul do? He talks on and on. Um, when he was sound asleep... He fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. <laughs> as a, as a, it's one of my favorite stories in the book bio, by the way, guys. It's just, I don't know. Something about it. I could just visualize this happening. He fell to the ground for the third story and was picked up dead. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be too hard on Paul, but like, you know what? There you go, Paul. But anyways, Paul went down and he threw himself on the young man. And put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. And then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. So Paul didn't learn his lesson because now he's talking from midnight to daylight. But regardless, I don't want to be too hard on Paul because, you know, he, he was interrupted rudely by this guy dying. So, <laughs> but he went down, he prayed for him. And, and, and let's just grasp the fact that God did do a miracle here. The boy was, it was either mortally injured, you know, comatose, or he was actually dead, as the scripture says here. And Paul healed him. I don't think Paul would have had to have healed him if he would have maybe structured his teaching seminar a little bit better. Regardless, it's good to know that God gave mercy to the man. But one thing I want to make note is what people remembered most of the sermon. Okay, when things like that happen, He's spending, what, hours and hours and hours and hours preaching, teaching, you know, and you know how Paul is. Go read the book of Rome. And if he was reading the Romans letter around the same time as this, you know his head was full of doctrine. And so he probably wanted to, he probably wanted to examine his letter that he just wrote to the Romans in great depth. Come on, guys, we're going to be all here all night, so get cozy. You know what I'm saying? So he probably wanted to share a lot of things. But look at what they remembered at the end of the whole sermon. The, the boy who fell out of the window. That's the thing they remembered. Okay? So then they put, took the man, young man, home alive and were greatly comforted. Okay, yeah, I'm speculating a little bit here. Maybe they did remember a lot of what Paul said doctrinally, you know. But it's interesting to see that, like, when something like that happens, you know, come on, we're people. That's what's going to get our attention. You know, wow, did you guys see what happened at church last night? Paul preached forever. And a boy fell out of the window and he died. What would Paul preach? I don't remember, but I'll tell you, he went and he fell on the boy and he was back alive again. Oh, that's amazing. So yeah, we give God credit. We give God glory. Thank you so much. God healed the boy. That's amazing. But what did Paul preach? What did he teach? I don't know. Maybe a little bit too hard on Paul. Next slide, please. Oh, okay. No, no, real quick though. So, so that's why I put these questions. Was, 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 was Paul right to rush through Churras? You didn't really, did the information really sink in? Okay, I don't know. You fill in the blank yourself because I, I, I do feel like I'm being a little bit hard on Paul here a little bit. Did he have bigger fish to fry in Rome? Again, where's his mind? I, I got to get to Rome, which is ironic because 
He does finally get to Rome, but he doesn't go to Rome as a free man. He goes to Rome as a prisoner. And also, this is where Luke joined the mission in the first journey. So remember when the first journey, when they get through the area, this is where, in Therese, is where Luke joined them. It's a little side note there. Uh, it was like a, a passing point. Really true as, I think, for Paul and for these guys, in their mind, it wasn't a, a significant, it wasn't like a Philippi or a Corinth or a Rome or an Ephesus. It was a passing point. It was basically a place like Shots, a place you kind of just pass by, but you don't stay for too long. Not very important for some people. But as you guys know, I think Shots is important enough to stay. And I think Troas could have been, should have been a place that was important enough to stay. Um, but in fact, Paul left so much in a hurry that he forgot his jacket. Is that how you spell jacket? <laughs> his jacket. And, or his cloak, which is, we asked Timothy, hey, um, when you come see me, go back to Troas and get my jackets. I left such a hurry that my jacket was there. <clears throat> Next slide, please. So now, okay, so now we're past Troas. A little bit of a sad story, that one. But now we're in Ephesus. No, we're not going to be in Ephesus. I'm sorry. He's going to meet with a church in Ephesus, okay? Um, and Miletus, as Dave, you know, reminded me of the name of the place. So in verse 13, um, we, so this is Luke with the, and Paul and all the, the, the gang, if you will. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, or Assos, or whatever you want to say it where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going um, there on foot. So he is walking to a, a coastal town, meet the gang, sail downwards. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene, uh, um, or how do you pronounce it? I don't know. Mytilene. The next day, uh, we set sail from there and arrived um, off Chios, all these fancy names that I don't know much about. But anyways, the day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. I know that word. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia. Again, I don't think it's because he didn't like the people of Asia. Okay. He didn't despise the territory. It's because he spent a lot of time there already. And he wants to go home, refresh. At this point, he's probably exhausted as well. I mean, you know what I'm saying? He's been traveling for many years. He's been away from home, you know, for a long time. He wants to go, you know, have some, you know, refresh his batteries, have, a, you know, some fresh inside, a good new plan for Rome. So he's, he's anxious. He doesn't want to dwell too long. So let's just keep traveling. And what we'll do is a coastal town here. It's a nice meeting place, kind of a halfway point between Ephesus and where we will be. And so what he did in verse 16, um, he, uh, yeah, he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, uh, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. But from Miletus, so in this little coastal town, Paul sent to Ephesus, which was, you know, you know, a journey from there, but close enough to send a message for the elders to leave their homes and their work and their lives to come and meet with Paul at Miletus. In verse 18, when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. Okay, now guys, here we're going to get to like, I think some pretty, um, we're going to look at Paul's heart a little bit, guys, okay? And we're going to look at, and this is cool because a lot of times in Acts, we see, we see a lot of the stories, a lot of the kind of details, the historical details, like the boy falling out the window. But we don't know much about his teaching. 
And that kind of bums me out a little bit, because I wish Acts had a little bit more doctrine in it. I wish Acts talked about what did Paul actually say when he preached? What did he actually say when he spent two years? But then again, how, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're going to have to have an appendix to, to Acts just to fill in all the details. You know what I'm saying? You can't really. So, Paul's, so Luke's intention was to give the broad stroke details as they traveled about. So, so here's an insight in some of the doctrinal stuff that he did do in Ephesus. And so I'm, I'm kind of glad about this portion of Acts. So, so, so look at it with me and look at what, what, what was the content of Paul's preaching and Paul's lifestyle, his conduct, and, how, and what happened in Ephesus. Okay, so he says, You know that I have lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of um, severe testing by the plots of the Jewish opponents. So in and amongst great suffering and turmoil and testing, as they say, so this, this tribulation, this, this oppression, he stayed with the people. You know, he, as long as he could under, you know, in good health, so to speak. I mean, I'm sure being stressed out isn't going to you know, prove Paul's health in any way, shape, or form. But he stood, he stayed strong for the sake of the people of, of Asia, specifically the Ephesians. And he had great humility. So again, he wasn't self-serving. Because if he was self-serving at all, he wouldn't have stayed he wouldn't have endured. But you see, Paul has a vision. He's got a goal. And I think we all should have a vision or goal, something that we live our lives for that's greater than ourselves. If we just live for ourselves like the hedonists do, you know, maximize our own pleasure, minimalizing our pain, then what's going to happen is we're, just going to, we're not going to be anything like Paul and anything like Christ, I hate to say, guys. But you see, Paul looked beyond himself. And beyond his pleasure and his pain. And he looked beyond, and he looked at the kingdom of God, what God's will is. And because of that, he says, I'm going to live like Christ, who died at an early age to save the world. I want to get that message. And in doing so, saving the world, really. And this is God's will. So because of that vision, because of his heart, he was able to exercise humility. Okay, If you don't have the vision of the of, of kingdom of God in your heart and your mind, concreted, you cannot exercise humility. It becomes false humility. It becomes a, an instrument for your pride. Okay? But here we see that Paul isn't using humility as an instrument for his pride. He's using it for the instrument of the, of the gospel. So he was actually humble because he wanted to see people's lives changed. And he had heart for people. That's why the tears comes. You know, he's, he's suffering. He's sympathetic. He's empathetic. He's there. He hurts when they hurt. He's suffering for their sake because of their pain, their sin, their rebellion, their need for repentance and change, their need for the gospel. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful. So he didn't hesitate. He didn't stop. He didn't hold anything back from them. He gave them everything they needed to grow and to be able to stand on their own two feet. They've taught you publicly and from house to house. So he was very active, very busy. He went to homes. He went out to the public meeting areas. We know um, this is the place where he um, you know, went to that school you know, and taught from the theater hall there and met there. He, but he, he didn't stop with that. He went from home to home. He, you know, he visited people and told them. But he didn't visit people just to have a cup of tea with them, by the way, guys. He, he went there to tell them doctrinal important stuff. He was a teacher. He was a preacher of the word of God. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God. Well, here it is. That's the substance. This is what he taught. This is what he taught. This is the substance of what he taught. He's declared to all the people of the world, every single person, Jew and the Greeks, whoever, that they must turn to God. 
and repentance. Again, I don't, if I sound like a broken record, I apologize, but this is the Bible. The Bible is really simple, and the gospel is really simple. And that's why I say we should all know the gospel in a real basic way. The gospel is about turning to God. Okay, how many times have we seen this through Matthew and Acts? I would say probably 400 million times. It's turning to God in repentance, which means not my way, but God's way. Again, it's not a hedonistic, egoistic lifestyle where it's my way and how God can feed me and give me good pleasures and good feelings. No, that's not the gospel at all. The gospel recognizes that the self is cancerous, you know, i.e. sinful, and we need to change from the self because if we don't, we're going to eat ourselves from the inside out. So we change we repent. That's what repentance is. It's changing. Not my way, not my will, because we are people who have, we're agents, which means we have wills, and our wills can be strong sometimes, our wills can be weak sometimes. But we want to be in line, not with our own will, even Jesus, who says out of God, says it's not my will, but it's God, the Father's will. So it begins with the repentance. Not my way, not my will, but God's way and God's will. That is the gospel. It starts with repentance, and then faith, trust that God is, well, Jesus is the way to God. He's the way of God's kingdom, which means he's a way of life, genuine, real life in the world that God created. Next slide, please. And now, in verse 25, now I know that none of you um, among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. What a sad thing to say, Paul. Why used to downer for? Well, you see, Paul, he heard from, from, the, from the Holy Spirit, and, he, and he's got it... And he's seen the work that he's done. And he realizes, I've done all that I could do here in Ephesus. Now it's time for you guys to go on your own. I've done what I can do. I've done all that I could do. But now it's time for you guys to stand on your own two feet. I can't hold your hands the rest of your life. I'm going to go back to, 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 to Jerusalem. You know, and then hopefully back home to Antioch. But, I'm gonna, but at, at some point, I'm going to go to Rome. And I may not be back again. Okay? And to be honest with you, I'm scared. Well, that's what he says here, because I don't, I don't know if I'm going to live much longer because I am hated around the world and people who are hated around the world don't live long lives. Verse 26, therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. What? Again, what would you guys do if I said we had a nice big farewell party? Me and Danny, okay, we're going to go to plant church somewhere else, or we're going to go back to California and help the churches there, whatever. So let's have a big farewell party. And I stood up and said, hey guys, I will declare today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. What would you guys do? Well, there goes Scott again, being weird and poetic, right? Well, Paul might be a little bit weird like me, but not as weird as I am. So he has an intention here, okay? He has an intention here. Basically, persecution. He's seen it. He saw it. And also, he was being a bit productive. In his mind, in his understanding of what Jesus taught and what has happened in his life, is it's not going to get any better, okay? The persecution is going to get worse before it gets better. And so he's basically warning them, guys, it's going to get tough. It's going to get tough. But I warned you. Jesus warned me, and he warned the other apostles. It's going to get tough. You serve Jesus, you're going to come under persecution. Jesus warned us. We understand it. We're feeling it. And now I'm warning you guys. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Again, he completed his job. He explained everything that God wanted to explain. This is the will of God. And not in part, but in completion, in whole. So he says, keep watch over yourselves. So here's the recommendation. I've given you everything you need. Okay? By the way, you're going to get hurt. Okay? But I've given you everything you need. 
So what you need to do is keep watch over yourselves and, and all the flock. So again, he's talking, over, he's talking to the elders here. So he's specifically saying to the elders, boys, you know, grow up. You got to keep, you got to, you know, and then, and, and I believe the elders are definitely the spiritual leaders of the church, but they're usually people who've been around for longer, long enough. So if you've been around for a long time, then you should consider yourself one way, shape or form an elder of some sort. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're new to Christ and you've only been walking with them for a couple of years, then, then don't, don't feel that way. But if you, but if you're, <laughs> unless God's doing some, some spiritual work in your life, that's awesome. Then, you know, that's good because God can do that. God, God certainly did that. To, to, and my, even Timothy, Timothy, Paul said, don't despise your youth. So if you're young and you're being raised up, then that's awesome. That's what I'm saying here. What I'm doing is I'm encouraging people who've been walking with the Lord for 20 years. If you're walking with the Lord for 20 years, then, then certainly you, you, should, you should know the whole will of God enough to be able to, to help keep watch, okay, of the flock, okay? This is the pastoral work, a command to care. Care for people, you know, help you know, young people are around us. They need help. They need care. Weak people, innocent people around us. They need help to be cared for, to be looked after. So keep watch of yourselves and the flock. Okay? The people, the flock. Think about a sheep and a shepherd. A shepherd takes care of vulnerable sheep. And so we need to take care of vulnerable sheep as well. People. Of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Again, he's giving you responsibility. Be shepherds of the church of God. Again, shepherds. When I think of the word shepherd. It's hard because of my historical experiences. I think of shepherding, you know, which is an authoritarian, you know, movement where people control other people. And the thing is, that's not what Paul's talking about here. That's dangerous and dodgy. We're not talking about manipulating and controlling people who are under you. That's, that's as satanic as satanic can be. That's just not what he's talking about. He's talking about caring for people, loving people, looking out for people, helping. Where there's weakness, you come along and you help. Where there's sadness, you come along. Where there's confusion, you come along and help. So again, being shepherds. Not shepherding, but being shepherds. Pastors, carers of the church of God, which he has bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in. Again, this is very similar to what Jesus said about the wolves in sheep clothing. You know, he goes, I know it's going to happen because I've given you the whole will of God, but someone is going to come in after me and they're going to mess it all up or try to mess it all up. And they're going to mess it all up with dodgy teaching and, and, and giving you guys lies. And then he's gonna, they're going to manipulate you. People like I mentioned just briefly, like the shepherding people, the authoritarian types who want to control, manipulate you. They're going to come in and if you give them your hearts and your minds and your souls, they're going to manipulate you and they're going to tear you apart. They're like savage wolves, like with sheep. They'll come in and they will not spare the flock. They'll, they'll tear you guys apart. Paul's worried about this. I love you guys. I've done nothing but come in with humility and give you the whole will of God. But please don't let it all go to waste. Protect yourselves, guard yourselves because you're going to come under attack. Even, verse 30, even from your own number, men will rise and distort the truth. See, this is the issue. The issue isn't about coming in and getting battered. The issue is distorting the truth, taking what God has done and making a mess out of it, taking what God's word is and what it means, what it stands for, and watering it down, distorting it, messing it up, making it say something it doesn't. 
in order to draw away disciples. See, that's what they, they're looking for. looking for followers. They're looking, they want to be celebs. They want to be the, the, the man, the popular people. They want to have the respect and the honor of the people. They want to make something of themselves, build their own little kingdoms. You see? So they're taken away from God to build their own little kingdoms. So what we need to do is be on our guard. That's what he says to them. Verse 31, be on guard. Remember that for three years, see, that's why I said Paul. Paul said three years. I, I counted two in a bit, but okay, three years. I have never stopped warning you, each of you, night and day with tears. Again, I don't think he's applying to the emotions, being rhetorical here. But what he's saying here is, I've suffered with you guys. I've proved myself because I didn't come in to steal from you. I didn't come in with fancy glitter and, and, and glitz and, and woo and wowed you. I came in here and I lived the life that you guys live with you through thick and through thin. Remember that when you're tempted to be led astray. Next slide, please. Now I commit you to God and to the, whole, and to the word of his grace which can be built up, which can yeah, build you up, I'm sorry, and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. How awesome. I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. So again, the word, he's given them the message. And this message is God's message. We live by it. We live in it. It's our guide for everything. It's a guide for knowing God. It's a guide for knowing our relationship with God. It's our guide for living a right life in this life can build you up and give you an inheritance, which means longevity, real meaningful life among those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver, gold, or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs. Again, he didn't come to rip people off. You know, I came, I supplied my own needs, and these are my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. So here's the thing. Not only is he commanded to care for people, but he also commands us to, to provide, to, to really be there for people who are weak. We must help the weak. And I believe this is a financial weakness. I believe this is a health weakness. I believe this is a mental weakness. I believe this is physical weaknesses. I believe this is spiritual weaknesses. Various sorts of weaknesses. If you feel strong, don't become self-righteous and pompous. If you feel strong, then look for opportunity to help the weak. Wherever you are strong at, and you see a weakness in another person, don't gossip about them. Don't humiliate them and make them, cut them down, but help them. Because you're strong by God's grace and by God's grace only. Those persons that you are wanting to, you know, to talk about in a negative way, maybe they're weak and they need help. What's Paul's advice? We must help them. Remember the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Wait a second. I thought this was a Christmas slogan. Is it a Christmas thing? It's better to give than receive? I always thought it was. So what is it that Paul's given? Well, he gave his life. He came in humility. He gave everything. He could have been a, you know, a great you know, Pharisee, philosopher, academic type, but he gave up everything. He gave up his life so these people could know to help the weak so they may be saved. This is what Paul's given. He didn't give a Christmas present looking for, you know, hey, I'll give you this X value, a Christmas present, if you promise to give me that back as well, because I want to give to receive. That's not what he's talking about here. 
<coughs> Who's the benefactor of the blessings given? The weak. Not Paul. The weak. Again, so when we give, it's not your mates that we're wanting to give. Unless they're weak, then, yeah, we have an obligation to help them. You know, oh, if, you know if I treat them good, maybe they'll treat me good in the future. You know, that, not that kind of, you know, you know, self-preservation, hedonistic type of thinking. It's like, you need help. God has blessed me. All I can do is give without tie, without nothing. Paul's talking about genuine providence and pastoral care here, guys. So when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with them and prayed. And they all wept as he embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was the statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompany him to his ship. This is the final slide, guys. We'll end with this one. We're going to pick up this, I think, the next time I preach. Because I want to look at the impact that Paul had in, in Asia a generation later. Well, almost a generation. I think about 20 years after the fact. Jesus comes and gives a report card to the churches in, in Asia. So we saw Paul come to Asia. We saw what he did. We see this wonderful encouragement and this really heartfelt encounter with these guys, these elders who are responsible for taking care of the people. Let's see how things happened to the church 20 years. And I thought it was interesting. Something about Cornerstone. You, I mean, we realize we've been here for about 11 years, almost 11 years. Last year, 2016 would have been our 10th year. You know, and I thought, you know, how, how much have we changed? How much have we developed? How much have we grown? Quite a bit. And I'm quite glad about that. If you think about our last 10, 11 years, it's been really awesome. But I think, how will we be 10 years from now? We'll see. So with Ephesus, this is 20 years after Paul's encounter and his planting of that church in Ephesus. Um, well, and I want to visit just briefly as we close. So this is what Jesus says in a way of a report card to the church in Ephesus. To the angel, the messenger, the pastor, if you will, the people who are responsible for the church in Ephesus. This is what he has to say to them. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hands and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. Does that sound very familiar to what Paul was encouraging them? Watch out for the wolves, remember? So they've done it. I know you've not tolerated the wicked people. That you have not tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not. Remember those who want to come in and distort the truth and take people away? They've done a good job. Good guys. You found them to be false. I love that word. False. You have preserved and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Wow, what a great report card. But we're going to see if that's how it ends next time we get together. So I want to look at these seven letters because it's telling to see how things happen. There's a little break and then we'll return to Acts. So they did very well at chasing away the wolves, the dodgy wolves, right? The ravenous wolves. But did they really care, love the people like Paul? Remember Paul did say, it goes, not only to chase to protect the flock from the dodgy wolves, but you also you need to care to provide for the weak. Okay, did he do, did they fulfill that criteria? We'll find out. I'll keep that as a mystery. If you want to you know, find out for yourself. You can read the rest of Revelation 2, the little portion that says Ephesus. So again, next time we'll look at the lasting effect that Paul made on Asia Minor.